0: Arthur Conan Doyle, the the author of the Sherlock Holmes series of uh, novels, decided on one occasion to pull a practical joke on a dozen prominent businessmen in the community and some of his own close friends. He sent them all the same telegram anonymously, and all the telegrams said on it were the words, all is discovered. Without ever intending for this to happen, it created quite a scandal because within 48 hours, half the recipients of his telegram had mysteriously left the country <laughs> without a word. This isn't a new problem or challenge, is it? Diogenes, you go back to the 4th century B.C., that philosopher who became famous as he walked around Athens with a lantern burning brightly. and Whenever he was asked, what are you doing?, he would say, I'm looking for an honest man, and I can't seem to find one. Warren Wiersbe, the former pastor of Moody Church and a prolific author, wrote in his little volume that I have in my library at home, a book called The Integrity Crisis. And I quote, the church has grown accustomed to hearing people question the gospel simply because the message seems Foolish. But today the situation is reversed, for now the messenger is suspect. The reason this kind of issue matters so much to the church is fairly obvious. A cynical world is is today basically asking the same thing. They're asking the same questions. Why should we listen to you? Why should we listen to the church? How do we know you're telling the truth? Do you really believe all that stuff? And if you do... Shouldn't you be living it out? Can the church be an institution worthy of being trusted? Well, Paul the Apostle would believe and teach that the solution to this conundrum that's been going on really since the age of the church began, he began to teach that holding a spiritual office in the church ought to belong to someone who is submissive to the Holy Spirit. And one of the most critical questions to ask and answer is who is leading the church and what exactly qualifies them to lead. And this wonderful little new series of books. They're not little, they're actually large hardbacks. Chuck Swindoll, the Chancellor of Dallas Seminary, has written them. They're called Insights, and I have his insights on the book of Titus at home in my study. And he said this, he said that Paul is demanding... Leaders to be men of character regardless of their age, regardless of their wealth, their experience, their power, or their position. Leaders must demonstrate proven Christian maturity. Without that, everything is suspect. Without that, the church is hindered and the name and cause of Christ is hurt. I shared with you a number of years ago, most of you probably weren't even here, but I remember telling you about a leading Christian statesman coming to Colonial a number of years ago. Pastor and a Christian leader, a man of integrity. In fact, he's so well known that if I told you too much about him, he'd figure out who he is. He's with the Lord, and I don't want to disparage him in any way. But I remember on one occasion when he was visiting, I was showing him around Cary at the time, population 32,750, a lot of land, and I said, we're looking at that land and this land and... And uh, we need to build, we're renting this school. And and he said as we drove along, he said, you know, what you need to do is put well-known, wealthy men on your board. Their influence and their financial resources will provide for the vision that God has given you to do what you need to do. While I thanked him for that advice, something in my heart said, "I, I don't know about that. Didn't ring true. You don't find business connections and financial portfolios as a list or among the list of qualifications for those who will lead in the church. It was tragically ironic that years after this man passed away, a gentleman who had served as his board chairman for decades, a prestigious and well-known banker and landowner, died. He and his wife died in a car accident. They were involved in a tragic accident the funeral attended by thousands of people, but then the news came out a few months later that impacted that city and that ministry in an entirely different way. When this man's will was being probated by the court, a young woman in her early 20s showed up. The family, of course, wanted to know what she's doing here, and who is she. she claimed to be that deceased board member's illegitimate daughter, and she had all the proof that she needed to prove that, in fact, it was true that he had been secretly providing for her, paying for her education and needs all those years, living in the very same town. That family was devastated, the church and the ministries, and most importantly, the name of Christ and the cause of Christ, which you can only imagine how it was sullied because of... That news. And what's more, all the major decisions this man had made were now in in question. Now I I say that and, and don't run to this to this implication that if you're a banker, you can't be an elder. Or if you're wealthy, you're hiding something, you know. You got a secret or two. Now my point is in that in choosing leaders, if we choose them according to worldly standards of success, they may not be meeting the standards provided by God which truly matters. So as Paul writes to Titus, his young protégé and pastor on the island of Crete, the qualifications you find in chapter 1 have nothing to do with a financial portfolio. See, it isn't how much a man earns as to whether or not he can lead. How much he owns does not qualify him for oversight. So what does? Paul continues to spell it out for us. You'll notice he writes in verse 7 of Titus chapter 1, where we left off in our last study. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. The overseer, the overruler, and he changes the term, in fact, from presbyteros, administrator, in verse 5, to episkopos, or overruler. So the elder administrator has to fit qualifications. And now he shifts the term because this man is now going to be seen as an over-ruler. That is, one who is in charge of ruling. And in that comes this shift in term. And I want to spend just a few minutes on this issue. It might be a little tedious for you, but it's important that we address it. The Catholic Church maintains that a bishop is higher up on the food chain than an elder that Paul is now going to give different qualifications for a separate, different office. They have the office of elder, and then they have the office of bishop. Now what that does is it conveniently separates the bishop in verse 7 from the qualifications of an elder in verse 6, where he must be a faithful what? Husband. And father, obviously, allowed to be married and have children, if he is married and has children, and here's how he's to manage them. The Roman church maintains that Paul gives us one list for married elders, qualified in verse 6, and then Paul gives us a new list for the office of celibate bishops in verses 7 to 9, where there's no reference to a wife or children, and of course, if that's true, then you're often running up the celibate food chain eventually to cardinals and ultimately to, to the pope. The problem with all of that tradition and all of that hierarchy is this verse itself, The Bible just gets in the way of all of that. Verse 7 begins with a little Greek word, for, or gar, translated for. For the overseer, the guy I've been talking about, must be above reproach. In other words, Paul is continuing his thoughts, and he's not even taking a grammatical breath. He isn't changing the subject. Grammatically, there's no break in the flow of these characteristics. He's simply giving some requirements now and reminding the elder pastor bishop that you also happen to be one who rules over. So because you rule over the assembly, here's a little more explanation of what that leadership needs to look like. I find it ironic by the way that it is the apostle Peter considered the first pope who just so happens to be the biblical writer who uses the terms pastor, bishop and elder in the same text for the same man and for the same office. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 2 and Peter was a married man. At least that would be a clear assumption since Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. We're told in Matthew 8:14 that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law of her fever. I don't know how many men would be willing to have a mother-in-law without getting a wife out of the same deal, right? I'm not going to go any further with that, by the way, except to say that I had a wonderful mother-in-law who's with the Lord now, and she's probably listening. So let's move on to verse 7, okay? Paul is reemphasizing the categorical characteristic of blamelessness. You're not only an administrator, you're an over-ruler. And so you've got to be blameless. And I'm going to reemphasize that. You remember from our former study, this doesn't mean a church leader is flawless. If that were true, I wouldn't be here, nor would any other leader. But while he isn't flawless, he must be faithful. Paul is not demanding perfection, but someone who demonstrates a pattern because you're going to be imitated because you're, you're leading. That's just the nature of leadership. So first here in verse 6... This man must be faithful and worthy of imitation in the private life of his marriage and home. And now secondly, in verses 7 and 9, he must be worthy of imitation in his public life and his character. And that's the shift from private to public. And in so doing, Paul adds an interesting word here in this opening phrase. Notice verse 7 again. He must be above reproach as what? As God's steward. The word steward is a compound word. It comes from oikonomos, oikos, house, uh, nemos, arranger. He is the arranger of the house. A steward is the keeper of the house. A steward in Paul's day would have more than likely been a slave who had risen up through the ranks, Because of his trustworthiness, now given the right to rule over the estate of this man, the estate owner, and manage this estate. The steward does not own his master's estate. He just manages it. He stewards it. He stewarded the manager's estate. Like the stewardess on the plane, now called a flight attendant. She doesn't own the plane But she manages everyone inside the plane. She arranges the plane on behalf of her employer for the benefit of those who are flying on this long trip or short trip. The idea steward is interesting in its Anglo-Saxon etymology. It comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word, stigward, which we changed to steward over time. It literally meant originally a stigward was a keeper of the sty. Literally, he was the keeper of the pig sty. Now, I know that doesn't sound all that flattering. We'd rather be sheep than pigs. But in this case, what this idea was is that this position was so critical because the survival of the estate depended upon somebody honest and faithful in the management of what was their primary meat supply. We got to make sure the guy in charge of pigs was honest because we're not going to have anything to eat if he didn't. This is the idea here, and you can, of course, think of one of the most famous stewards, the most famous in the Bible, is uh, Joseph, Genesis chapter 39. Joseph was sold into slavery and belonged for a time to Potiphar, and because of his trustworthiness, he sort of rose through the ranks until Potiphar placed him as the manager, the steward of his estate. Joseph owned nothing. He managed it on behalf of the estate owner. So when Paul writes to Titus, he's talking with that in mind. In fact, I think it's interesting that he introduced himself in verse 1 as a slave of God. Oh, and by the way, I'm just a steward of stuff that really doesn't belong to me. In fact, Paul told Timothy earlier, uh, Timothy, a young elder, he said, listen, in case I'm delayed... I write to you so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, God's house. The church, not so much the buildings, but the people, and you could certainly claim the sacred space that we've dedicated to him as part of the household of God. The elder bishop pastor is stewarding God's house, which is a reminder, again, that that the church belongs to God. And I want to be very careful in my stewardship of that. I don't even use the phrase when I stand here before you and call you my people. You are God's people. I'm stewarding God's possession. The elders with me, leaders, deacons and and leaders and teachers, we're, we're literally managing God's possession. The church on his behalf. For the benefit of those who are on this trip together. And so we fulfill his will as we feed and lead and train and counsel and discipline and encourage and equip and guard the household of God. Now I don't know about you, but I'll use the analogy I used last Lord's Day and kind of bring it into today. But if you've ever left your kids in the care of some babysitter, somebody who is about to steward your estate, your house, your house, your children, you'll find yourself telling her some negative things first. Don't do this, don't do that, don't let the kids do that, please don't let the kids do this, and and you do that before you ever get around to telling the positives, because you want their focus of attention on you to not miss any of the don'ts. Well, that's exactly what Paul is going to do here for us. He's going to give us five negatives about who the elder is to be before giving us seven positives we're going to deal with the negatives today. Notice verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. Now let me outline these five negative characteristics this way. Because an elder bishop pastor... Not only administrates but rules over the assembly. It is God's household and he is put in charge. He cannot be, and we need everybody to focus on this because this is first out of the gate. He cannot be, one, blinded by arrogance, two, controlled by anger, three, influenced by alcohol, four, recognized as abusive, or five, driven by affluence. Those are the five negatives. Okay, you ready? Let's go unpack these one at a time. First, an elder can't be blinded by arrogance. Note Paul writes, God's steward is not self-willed. And I think the reason this is first in the list is because it's the exact opposite attitude of a steward. A steward doesn't own anything. A steward, furthermore, doesn't do his will. He does the will of the master. He doesn't own the household. He's just on loan to the household. In fact, everything that he's going to manage is on loan to him. You see, to take that analogy a little further, you wouldn't expect to come home and find out the babysitters used your makeup and put on your clothing, painted the living room wine green and gotten rid of the dog. Cat would be fine, but not the dog. Okay. Unless you said she could, she's probably not going to be invited back. This isn't her house. Those aren't her clothes or makeup. She can't get rid of the dog. She was brought to the house to do your will. So let me add quickly here that this word self-willed probably comes across as a little more mild to us English readers as uh, more so than Paul intended. He's actually referring to somebody so given over to their will, so given over to their self-will, their self-serving, Arrogance that that person literally gives off a spirit of entitlement, and everybody knows it entitlement. He doesn't exist for the sake of the church, he gives everybody the impression the church exists for him. In the analogy of the babysitter, this refers to you coming home only to find out that the babysitter's actually changed the locks thrown all your clothes out onto the front porch and changed the name on the mailbox. This kind of person says, This is all mine. My will matters above everybody else's. This kind of person doesn't walk through ministry, he struts through ministry. He's caught up with his own arrogant self importance, he's blinded by his own reflection. And this was the downfall of Satan, was it not? Given great responsibility as the highest order of the angelic host in managing them. And what did he do? He became blinded in his arrogance so that he said, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will ascend unto the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High, Isaiah 14. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. See, Satan had great authority. He just forgot whose will mattered most. One author said then, an elder never says This is mine, because all he has comes from God. His time, possessions, talents are all loaned to him by the Lord, and he must be faithful to use them to honor God as he works with Christ, as Christ builds his church. So Paul says right out of the gate here, Titus, make sure you grant power only to those who aren't in love with it. Certainly those who aren't in love with themselves. Secondly, here's another negative. An elder is not controlled by anger. Paul described it in verse 7 as quick-tempered. It's important to understand that Paul in these is referring to a way of life. This is their character. In fact, there are two primary Greek words for anger. One word translated anger in your New Testament is the word thumos. We get our word thermos from it. It refers, however, to something differently than we we would use a thermos for, but it refers to a a fire that that quickly blazes up and just as quickly subsides, like like throwing straw or newspaper on a fire. You get get that whoosh, and then as quickly it's gone. The second word is orgelas, which is an anger that a man actually nurses internally so that he can keep it warm. That's the word Paul uses. Paul isn't referring to someone with an occasional burst of anger, but to a person with a propensity to anger. In fact, he enjoys it, and he enjoys it so much, he keeps it on the stove, so to speak. It's warm, ready to burst into flame at any moment. In other words, this is a person known as an angry man. He has an internal inclination toward anger more than any other emotion. And that's how he kind of responds to life with anger. And the reason this is so critical is probably obvious. Let me simply say that working with people provides so many wonderful opportunities to get what? Angry. Right? It's okay to laugh. You serve in that classroom. You coach that team. You manage that department. You've got, more than anybody else, a thousand good reasons to lose your cool. And if losing your cool is your propensity, everyone loses. Because the role of leadership means you're going to be able to add resentments upon resentments, hurt upon hurt. Anger upon anger. As one author said, even when everything in the church seems to be going in the wrong direction and people are critical or indifferent, the qualified elder must guard himself against a spirit of hostility and resentment and anger. It's frustrating, isn't it? Those of you who lead. Reminds me of what another author wrote rather humorously. He said, Every leader in here. Can identify with this truth that being a leader is kind of like running a cemetery. There are a lot of people under you, but nobody is listening. (laughs) So what are you gonna do about it? What are you gonna do about this? Well, let's go all the way up to Christ, the ultimate model shepherd. Can you imagine the irritation of spending three and a half years in the same room with Peter and Thomas and Judas? In fact, to come to the end of your ministry and and the disciples are debating and arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the coming kingdom. It's going to be me. No, it's not going to be me. It's not going to be you. It's going to be me. No, here are the reasons it's going to be me. And what does Jesus do? No. He gets a towel and a basin of water and washes their feet. And they never forgot that. And at the utmost of his agonies while he is being crucified, while he is receiving the worst offenses possible, he prays, Father, forgive them. They really don't know what they're doing. Luke 23, 34. None of us have been offended like Christ. None of us have been hurt like Christ. None of us have been betrayed like Christ. So it's as if Paul is saying, this is the kind of pattern we're all to follow. And I want some human agents that are dedicated passionately to following this model and then turning around and allowing the body to pattern after them. Third, an elder cannot be influenced by alcohol. Okay, this ought to be interesting, right? What does he mean? Paul writes, a steward of God cannot be addicted to wine. I've never met anybody who said I'm addicted to wine. I've met a lot of people who drink, but I've never met anybody, apart from those who are recovering alcoholics who will admit it was a problem. What does the word here imply? The word Paul uses carries the idea of continually being alongside of wine. Literally, someone whose elbow is at the wine. In other words, he's saying wine is not to be seen as his companion. If you study biblical instruction regarding alcoholic drinks, as we call them, you'll soon discover that abstinence is not mandated. In fact, there isn't a a verse that states that Christians should abstain from all wine at all times. What you do find are strong exhortations, even prohibitions, against strong drink and much wine. An elder isn't to be then perceived as someone who is under the influence of much wine, which would take quite a bit of wine, as you understand what the New Testament wine was like, uh, by the way. In fact, what's most often overlooked in this issue of understanding is what wine was like in Paul's day. Most people never stop to consider through study that the wine of the New Testament days is not the same wine of Harris Teeter today. Far different substance. In fact, we know from history that wine was basically purified water. Pliny, the first century historian, referred to wine as eight parts water, one part wine or alcoholic or fermented juice. We have so much data from the first century. We've got a recipe upon recipe. The wine of the New Testament days in fact, the average mixture was about three to four part water to one part wine. It was effectively purified water that gave it taste and cleansed it as a disinfectant. Which explains then, by the way, why Paul told Timothy to drink a little wine for your what? For your stomach's sake. I know a lot of people are drinking for their stomach's sake. And they go right to this verse. Verse. What they overlook is the fact that Timothy in the first century was so concerned about his reputation as a young elder that he'd not be viewed in any way as attached to wine or ever under the influence that he swore off on any of it all and began drinking straight water. Not a good idea. It wasn't safe. You ever travel outside this country as I just did? You, everything's bottled water. In Santiago, I, I got a bottle of water and use it in my hotel room to brush my teeth and to drink. You go to a restaurant and you order bottled water. If they bring you that bottle of water and you turn that cap and it doesn't snap open, you ask for another one because they probably filled it with a tap and put the lid on. All it takes. In fact, I, I take a shower, I close my eyes, and my mouth so tightly my lips will hurt. Why? Because one drop can change my mission experience <laughs> for a week. Timothy, you need fermented wine. You you need water cleansed from contamination. One Bible scholar who studied the making of wine in the first century made the comment that the average first century person would have needed to drink 12 eight ounce glasses of wine to get the same amount of alcohol one could get today in one martini. Wine today, the wine of Harris is comparable to the strong drink of the early centuries, which the Bible clearly forbids. Why? Because it so quickly can bring you under its influence and impair your judgment. And for those of you who will lead, you can never have your judgment impaired. I mean, I ask people... In my own greenhouse class, because this subject comes up, is there at any point a time in my life when you would be comfortable with me or any of our elders being under the influence? Slightly inebriated. No. What I find then personally tragic is in this age we live in, when we now know the effects of it all, half the murders, suicides, accidental deaths, or related alcohol, One in four families we will deal with, deal with some kind of substance abuse, often alcohol. It's one of the largest health problems in America, destroying families, reducing life expectancy, and on and on and on. Why would any elder in this culture defend it, but rather instead model a pattern that stays as far away from it as possible? You add to that the fact that Paul and Timothy and Titus had virtually nothing much to drink. And we have hundreds of choices which will never impair our judgment, never cloud our thinking, and further never hinder our testimony or credibility and never tacitly endorse to some younger believer or maybe even a younger person and cause them to stumble, Paul wrote, to be ruined, this brother for whom Christ died. First Corinthians 8. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 31 along these lines, and it's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to crave beer. The NIV translation for strong drink. Lest they drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. In other words, those who lead, you've got to be careful. You have people under your leadership. See, I think Timothy was onto something. That's usually kind of thrown under the bus in the debate. There's your model It isn't how much you can drink without offending somebody or needing a ride home, but how far away from it you can stay. And Paul writes here, not addicted to wine. Literally, he's saying someone who's not always seen as drinking because he would have to continually be drinking. And this man perhaps could with his elbow at the table so that he would drink those 12 glasses in the daytime so that he could get that buzz and be impaired. I am personally grieved and and amazed, and I've watched it happening over the last five, six, seven years, how pastors and elders are now bragging about their own breweries in their basements, their own brew, as if this is some kind of great pastoral badge of relevance and liberty. Listen, sometimes... Our liberty strangles common sense. And whether you agree or not, I want you to know you're not going to find that here. For no other reason than that of influencing others toward holy living, our our elders and our deacons and our leaders and our teachers are asked to model not how much they can handle, but how clean a life can you live. You all these people following you. It isn't how close I can get you to the precipice of something that can destroy you, but how far away from it I can lead you. You see, people are going to want to excuse all kinds of things. This isn't just the same, the only issue, you got gluttony, you got media choices, certainly pornographic material which would flow into sensuality in movies and, and in music, the use of drugs, people are going to want to take all that and put it into Romans 14 and say, listen, it's my prerogative, man, don't put me into legalism. I'm under, I'm under the, the, the constraints or the release of liberty. An elder does not think like that. He's thinking, what would be best for the flock? What would be the best pattern of living for those who follow us? What would protect them the most? That's how an elder thinks, who's a genuine shepherd. And by the way, every father and mother needs to take note as well, what you allow on television is going to become the standard, and they'll stretch it, they'll stretch it, they will stretch it. What you listen to endorses for them a world of whatever that world is, where they came from, whatever you have in the refrigerator is going to be their starting place, not their ending place, and they're going to take it further than you may have ever dreamed. For the elder, he must not allow anything to cloud his mind or captivate his senses, and he wants to be sensitive to that. Number four, Paul goes on to say that an elder cannot be recognized as abusive. He writes in verse 7, not pugnacious. Interesting word. It originally referred to a striker, somebody who punches with his fist. In the Apostolic Canon, you go back a number of centuries and you'll find this interesting prohibition. I found it enlightening of what must have been going on. And I quote, We order that any bishop who strikes an erring disciple should be deposed. So it must have been such a problem. You get out of line, whack, that they had to come up with this injunction. The word came to refer to violence not only in action, but in speech. It came to refer to what we call a browbeater. beater. It's not physical assault, but verbal assault. Someone who berates and verbally abuses another. And this character, by the way, would become so critically important for the elder, right? Because he's going to handle highly emotional conflict. He's going to present himself oftentimes in the middle of a shouting match. He may be the recipient of all the shouting, He's going to be in the middle of tense situations where he's going to act as a referee. And what does the crowd often do to the referee? They hate him more than anybody else. He's got to have a bodyguard to get back to his car, right? What Paul is saying here then is that if an elder is given to respond to abuse with matching abuse, oh, you're saying that to me? Well, i got a few things to say to you with the same attitude and the same spirit. If he kind of shouts his way from one argument To another, if he berates and belittles others into submission, he is not qualified as a pattern of life in modeling Christ's response, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. One author wrote if he will treat the sheep roughly and hurt them, if he will, in his frustration, respond to the sheep with verbal assaults, He cannot be one of Christ's under-shepherds. Another author commented on this text by writing true spiritual authority has nothing to do with a vicious tongue or white knuckles and clenched fists. An elder, then, as a pattern of life and character, is not to be blinded by arrogance, controlled by anger, under the influence of alcohol, recognized as abusive. And one more. He cannot be driven by affluence. Paul writes at the end of verse 7, not fond of sordid gain. Paul is referring here to an elder whose life is all about money. No matter how he makes it, doesn't matter, honestly, it'd be dirty money, whatever, as long as he gets it. Money dictates his character. He then represents not the spirit of Christ, but the spirit of materialism, the spirit of the world, Everybody around him knows that making money is really his chief love in life. And maybe this is one of the reasons this kind of characteristic appears on this list here with Titus, because the Cretans, those who lived on the island of Crete, had a reputation for greed. In fact, one Roman poet living around the time of the Apostle Paul said that the Cretans are as eager for money as bees are for honey. So it's as if Paul is warning Titus not to choose a Cretan to be an elder. Or at least make sure the Cretan has the, has, has the Crete kind of squeezed out of him as he's reformed by the Spirit of God first. If they haven't had that squeezed out, if they haven't decided to battle it and fight it, there are going to be a lot of implications. Their ministry is going to favor the wealthy. They might be in somebody's back pocket. They're going to treat people for what people can give them. They're going to be looking for the perks in every opportunity. They're going to make decisions based on money and not ministry. Their hidden motive for serving the flock is not in feeding the flock, but in fleecing the flock, which is the opposite of the nature of an elder's ministry, which is to give, to give, to be generous, to manage funds, assets, to steward for the benefit of those under their care. Not this with a clenched fist, but this with an open hand. In fact, the very next phrase in Titus eight is a direct contrast to greed. We don't have time now, but he's going to say, but be hospitable. Don't be greedy and care how you get the money you get. Don't be greedy, but be hospitable. What is a person with the gift of hospitality or those given to hospitableness? Those leaders must evidence it. What, what is their attitude? Hey, everything, I've got yours. And I know people in the congregation that, that reflect that so wonderfully. Their house, their car, their stuff. Hey, you want it? You got it. Generosity and giving, according to Paul, and the Spirit of God speaking through them, should be the hallmarks of a shepherd's heart. He's effectively saying, don't be a greedy elder, pastor, bishop. Don't look at people as if you're looking at dollar signs. Don't treat them like that. Be generous and giving. Is there anyone more generous than Jesus Christ, our chief shepherd? Does he not daily lavish us with his grace? Did you and I not get out of bed this morning and find deposited in our bank account of life a fresh deposit of mercy? It's new every morning. Grace, love. And he constantly models that spirit, and so must his under shepherds for the body. Not stingy, not greedy. Not shady, but generous, great-hearted, and giving. Let's model that in the way we give to Christ and the way we give to each other and the way we live, shall we? I want to close with an email I received from a teenager just a few weeks ago. I'll leave her name off. I'm sure she she, uh, didn't expect me to read it. Most of it, but I wanted you to hear how we might even be able to model some generosity today. The subject line of her email to me read This is all in her subject line. My experience regarding a way in which Christians can improve their witness. She had my attention immediately. She wrote You probably don't know who I am, but I've been attending Colonial ever since I was a baby, and we were in the old building. Now I'm a senior in high school. I wanted to tell you about a conversation I had with a coworker this past Saturday. I work at the El Dorado on Tryon Road on Fridays and Saturdays as a waitress. El Dorado is a good spot for a lot of people to go after church because they have good prices for lunch, and it is right next to the church, and I didn't say that because I'm looking for a deal after church when I go over there. Okay? She said, I know colonial isn't the only church that goes over there, but I know a lot of colonial people do. I was talking to a coworker recently, and I mentioned how I bet Sunday's a good day to work because it's really crowded from all those people coming after church. He told me that, in fact, it's not because he never receives good tips. And I'm sure you know, as a waiter or waitress, the majority of our salary comes from tips. I remember him very clearly saying, you know, they go over there, and they get blessed by God, and then they can't even come over here and pay for our service. He claimed that was the reason he never went to church. Do I believe that is the only reason? No. There must be something else going on. But nonetheless, it is still a bad witness. One of the other waitresses calls us Christians freeloaders. And the worst is when somebody leaves a gospel tract instead of a tip. Don't do that, by the way. I think if you want to leave a tract, you want to leave a really big tip inside so they'll read it. As I said, I know colonialism is the only church that goes over there. Nonetheless, Colonial is a big church. You can do what you like with this information. You can keep it yourself, share it with a Bible study, whatever. But I wanted to tell you because um, you could make a big difference. In my opinion, Christians should always tip well, especially when they come in their dress clothes on Sunday for lunch because it's obvious that's where they came from. And if they can't afford to tip well, they ought to get fast food or eat at home. (laughs) There you have it. She says at the end, like I said, you can do whatever you decide you want to do with this information. (laughs) Thank you. I thought I'd tell a few thousand people today (laughs) that information. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the spirit to model, right? And with this as our closing challenge, let's model the spirit of Christ as a flock. Certainly those who will lead the flock. We are stewards in the 21st century. We are slaves of God led to manage the church which belongs to God. We cannot be driven by affluence. Recognized as abusive, influenced by alcohol, controlled by anger, or blinded by arrogance. Father, thank you for a list like this. If this is the pattern, then every one of us ought to be pursuing it. And it really does reflect you so well. This is how you are. This is what you are not, and this is what you are. Thank you that we follow a good shepherd like you. And Lord, I pray for this fellowship that we, as under shepherds, our deacons who are involved in leading as well in different ministries, our teachers, those who lead more than 100 ministries, That this would be our kind of thinking. Not what is the most we can get away with. But how quick can we be to confess when we fail and to follow a holy standard and a holy way of life. Because you are worthy of nothing less than our very best. And so may we as your children reflect the personality of you, our Father, and you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior, and you, Holy Spirit, the one who is to influence our minds and control our thoughts. Sing with me. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below.